You can be turning in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5, as we were just reading throughout the service. You may have noticed last week that in the bulletin it said that our passage for this week was going to be Genesis 3.15. And that was the original plan. I was going to start in Genesis 3.15, that great promise that we have from the very beginning, and I was going to work my way to Revelation 5. But as I began to read Revelation 5 and to study this magnificent passage, I told myself this has to be the focus. And so it's going to be. We're not going to stay here the whole time, but it is going to be the focus. This is where our total focus is going to be at the beginning and at the end of the sermon as you are going to see. So I'm going to again read from verse 1 down to verse 9. The Apostle John writes in verse 1, he is writing of this vision that the Lord Jesus Christ Himself has given him whenever he was exiled on the island of Patmos. During this vision, he has been seeing um, a, a glimpse into the throne room of God, you could say. And in chapter 5, he sees this scene. Then I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that He can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living, four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. We'll stop there for now. Father, I come before You as Your Word is now opened up before us, and I ask that You would would take away all of these unnecessary thoughts that could be going through our minds now in this time. May we be focused uh, completely on Your Word now. May You quiet our minds, may You quiet our hearts. I also ask that You would be with with me, this this sinful man, and that you would use me to put your wonderful and magnificent glory on display. I pray that Christ would be glorified in all the things that I say, and may they be spoken with clarity. I ask you would also be with those who are listening. May you give them eyes to see and ears to hear. And that at the end of this message, when we return to Revelation 5 and we see Jesus standing in glory, we would all rejoice. It is in His name, the Lord Jesus Christ, that I pray. Amen. In Revelation 5, 
The Apostle John is watching a heavenly scene play out before his eyes. A scene that raises a lot of questions. Questions like, who does the Apostle John see sitting on the throne? Why does he have a scroll in his hand? What is so important about the scroll that such a big deal is made about opening it? Who is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David? And how is he worthy to take the scroll from the one who sits on the throne and then get worshipped for doing so? There are a lot of strange things going on in this heavenly scene. In Revelation 5, we are given, as I was talking about earlier, a glimpse into the throne room of God. And what we are watching unfold is how God will bring all things to an end. How He is going to bring all history to its appointed conclusion. When understood, this is a beautiful scene to look forward to. And that is what my goal is this morning. I want you to delight in what will one day become reality. Because it is coming. This scene that we are looking at in Revelation 5 will one day be a reality. God will bring it to pass. And so I want you to delight in it, and I want you to look forward to its coming. So let's start walking through some of this passage together. In this passage, the one whom John sees on the throne is God the Father. The scroll that is in the Father's hand contains the events that will conclude all of history. You can see now why this scroll is such a big deal. Because whoever opens the scroll controls all of history. Your history, my history, and the history of all creation is commanded by the one who opens this scroll. So, who is worthy to do so? Who is worthy to take the scroll from the Father and command all of these things? That's the question we see the mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice. He proclaims, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? At first, there is no one found. John, who is watching all of this, begins to weep loudly. I can just imagine what he could have been thinking in that moment as he was watching these events play out before his eyes. Probably thinking along the lines of, there's nobody? There's got to be somebody. Somebody that is worthy to open the scroll, to bring all of history to its conclusion. But no one steps forward. None of the heavenly hosts no one on earth and no one under the earth is worthy to open the scroll. And so, John begins to weep. Until one of the elders says to him, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There is one who is found worthy. 
He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, the Lamb that was slain. He is the one who has conquered. He is able to open the scroll and break its seals. He is worthy to carry out the Father's will. Who is He? Who is this worthy one? It is Jesus. Now, before we can understand the significance of these titles that Jesus is given and why He is the one who is worthy to open the scroll, there is something we need to see. We need to see the main theme that the Bible has been unfolding up unto this point, which is creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. In short, that's how we can describe the central theme, theme, excuse me, that flows through all of the Bible. Restoration is what we see here in Revelation 5. And in order to understand restoration, we need to see first the other three. So for the rest of our time together, that's where we are going to do. We are going to briefly look at creation. How God in the beginning made everything very good. We are going to look at the fall. How everything got turned upside down. We are going to look at redemption. How Jesus succeeds where we fail. And in the midst of all of this, we are going to be working our way back to Revelation. And so as I was saying those things, you may have noticed that we are just going to make one big circle. We are going to start in Revelation 5. And we're going to go full circle all the way back. And when we come back, we're going to be able, in some sense, to be able to feel the weight of what's going on in this scene. And just so you're prepared, we are going to be going through these things rather quickly. So let's go back to the very beginning. Creation. In Genesis 1, we read that when God finished all His work in creation, He saw all that He had made and said... It is very good. This is what God proclaimed over all creation. It is very good. That is what Adam and Eve started out in. A world that was very good. They had all that they needed in the garden that the Lord had put them in. Even more, they had a perfect relationship with God and with each other. They loved the Lord with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength and loved each other as themselves. Adam and Eve enjoyed and imaged God as they were created to. It was all very good. However, there was one prohibition given by God. Adam and Eve were not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For if they ate of it, they would surely die, as the Lord told them. We then come to chapter 3 of Genesis. And we are introduced to a rather strange character, the serpent. And from Genesis 3, we don't really know a whole lot about the serpent. The author doesn't tell us where the serpent comes from. He doesn't tell us if this is a literal serpent or if this figure is just being pictured as a serpent. However, from other parts of the Bible, like Revelation chapter 12, 9 and Revelation chapter 20, verse 2, it is revealed to us that this serpent is in some way 
Satan himself. Some way, Satan himself is this serpent. We then read these words at the beginning of Genesis chapter 3. The author writes, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. The serpent then begins to question the woman about the prohibition that God had given. He begins to lie about God. In essence, what the serpent does in Genesis 3 is convince the man and the woman that they cannot trust God's Word that has been given to them. The serpent convinces them to believe that God is holding back on them. You will surely not die if you eat from the tree. You will be like God, knowing good and evil, the serpent says to Adam and Eve. So they ate and they rebelled. The essence of their rebellion being this, not believing God and declaring that they themselves will determine what is good and what is evil. We will be God, they said within their hearts as they took and ate of the fruit. After the rebellion, we see God curse the serpent, the woman and the man, What God said would happen has now become reality. The man and the woman are now cursed and will surely die. They immediately face spiritual death, which is separation from God. And they will eventually face physical death. Creation also is cursed along with them. But, in Genesis 3.15 even in the midst of God pronouncing these curses, there is hope. God tells the serpent in verse 15 that one of the woman's offspring is going to crush his head while in the process being injured by the serpent. This is amazing, isn't it? that even from the very beginning, God lays out hope. He says the fall is not the end. A Savior is coming. And that is what the rest of the Bible then begins to unfold. It begins to unfold this promise that is given in Genesis chapter 3. That is what we see throughout all the Old Testament. God continually painting a picture of the one who will crush the serpent's head. It is all pointing to Jesus. He is the champion that is to come. He is the one that will crush the serpent's head. So we could say that the Old Testament, after Genesis 3.15, begins to look forward to redemption. Remember, we were saying creation, fall, redemption, restoration. Redemption. It is looking forward to redemption, to when Christ will come. It begins, us, it begins to give us pictures of Jesus. Some are clearer than others, of course. Sometimes we are able to read an Old Testament passage and see clearly that the passage is pointing to Jesus. Sometimes it is a little more difficult. However, He is the one looked forward to nonetheless. He is there in the shadows. 
And for the next few minutes, I'm going to mention a few. We'll briefly go through the Old Testament, take a look at some of these passages, and see how they are all looking forward, speaking of Jesus. Jesus is looked forward to when God makes His covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15. And again in Genesis chapter 2, uh, excuse me, chapter 22, when Abraham is about to sacrifice his only son Isaac. Jesus is looked forward to when Jacob blesses his sons in Genesis 49. It is here in verse 9 that Jacob tells his son Judah this. Jacob blesses his son Judah and says, Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him. This is where Jesus gets the title, the Lion of the tribe of Judah that we see in Revelation 5. Jesus is the one who fulfills the law of Moses and fulfills the sacrificial system that is set up in the book of Leviticus. Jesus is looked forward to when God makes His covenant with King David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Here, God promises David that one of his offspring will establish God's kingdom on earth and reign on the throne forever. Jesus is looked forward to in the wisdom books of the Bible. He is looked forward to in the Psalms. Jesus is the one that the prophets spoke of. He is the righteous branch. The root of David from Isaiah chapter 11. He is the suffering servant of Isaiah chapter 53. He is the Son of Man who comes with the clouds of heaven in Daniel chapter 7. It is His coming that is foretold in Micah chapter 5. And so many other places in the Old Testament that we don't have time to look at or go over. They are all pointing to Jesus. They are all promising His coming, and they are all fulfilled when He does come. The coming that we find fulfilled in the very first words of the New Testament. This is what we read in the Gospel according to Matthew in verse 1. Matthew writes, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That sentence, filled with all those titles, points back to all the Old Testament promises that have been made. Matthew is saying, He has come. The promised one. He has come. Jesus. The one who has no beginning. Who was promised from the very beginning, has now come. He has come into the world as a human being. And He has come, as Matthew writes in verse 21 of chapter 1, to save His people from their sins. This Jesus has come to bring restoration to His people. He has come so that we can once again be in the presence of God. What was lost in the garden so long ago is now being restored through Jesus. And He accomplishes this through His life, 
His death, and His resurrection. His life on earth was perfect in every way. He loved God with heart, soul, mind, and strength and loved His neighbor as Himself every moment of every day. He did not fail the law at all. He upheld it at every point, every day, all of His life. He has perfect righteousness. Where we have failed, Jesus has succeeded. I think we see this best in Luke chapter 4. In this passage, Jesus has just been baptized. He is then led into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted by Satan for 40 days. It is here that we see Jesus succeed where Adam and Eve and we fail. Jesus resists every temptation that Satan throws at Him. And not only does He resist, but He comes back at Satan with the truth of God's Word. This is exactly where Adam and Eve and we, you and I, fail. Adam and Eve didn't trust God's Word. You and I don't trust God's Word. But Jesus does. He is the true and better Adam. As Paul said, in the first Adam, we all die. In the second Adam who is Jesus, there is life. This is why He had to be the one to die. He is the perfect Lamb of God. The only one able to truly save His people from their sins. All those sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament, that the priests make, they could temporarily atone for sins. They could pay for the people's sins temporarily. But they had to keep making them every day. All of those sacrifices pointed forward to Jesus' sacrifice. Of Jesus' sacrifice, the author of Hebrews writes this, And every priest, speaking of the Levitical priest, stands daily at his service, offering offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, He sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until His enemies should be made a footstool for His feet. For by a single offering He has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. That comes from Hebrews 10. The author of Hebrews is showing us These priests stand daily. Their work is never finished. But when Jesus offers His sacrifice and He returns to heaven, He sits down. His work is finished. It has been completed. He is the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. When Jesus was on the cross, whenever He was crucified by the Romans, we were talking about this in Sunday school this morning. Mike was talking about how bogus it is to think that Jesus was put in the grave and somehow the dampness and other things that were going on at the time could have brought Jesus back to life because the Romans made sure that He was dead because of their horrific style 
of execution, which is the cross. So during that, he suffered excruciating physical pain. But even more so, he experienced the holy wrath of God, his Father, which is what you and I deserve. On the cross, he drank every last drop of what should have been poured out on your head and my head. And once he had accomplished it, he cried out, It is finished. He had finished the work that the Father had given him. He would then commit his spirit into the hands of the Father and die and be buried in a tomb. But on the third day, when the sun broke over the horizon, Jesus reclaimed his life as he said he would. He overcame death and the grave. Neither could hold Him any longer than He allowed. When the time was up, He reclaimed it. He said, it is done. Give me my life back. And so He took that breath in. And in it, He defeated sin and death and Satan, and the grave. He rose on the third day victorious, confirming everything that He and all of the Scriptures had proclaimed about Himself, including Genesis 3.15 that we were looking at a moment ago that was made in the very beginning. As soon as Adam and Eve had fallen, it's not the end. A Savior is coming. Jesus in His life And His resurrection fulfills this. His death and His resurrection, the bruising of His heel, has crushed the head of Satan, who is the serpent. The once ruler of this world, Satan, has been disarmed by Jesus. It was in this way that Jesus provided the way back into the presence of God. What was lost long ago in Adam and Eve and our failure is now restored. In a way, this is what you experience, people of God, in prayer. You are able to go before the presence of God in prayer because of what Christ has done for you. He has purchased your redemption with His own blood. With His life, perfect in every way. With His death, drinking the wrath of God. Bearing the sins of His people. And then being buried and raised up from the grave. He purchased your redemption with His blood. Let's now return to where we began in Revelation 5. So turn back there with me. And let's pick up where we left off. The mighty angel is proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy? Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven nor earth, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. 
And I, John, began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Weep no more, John. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. We know where that title comes from now. The Root of David. We know where that title comes from. Has conquered so that He can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing. We know what that means now. Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, the one who gave His life as the perfect sacrifice. He is the Lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes. His perfect power, His perfect knowledge, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And He went and took the scroll from the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne. Where no one else is worthy, where no one else can step forward, where no one else can approach the holiest of holies, the presence of the Father sitting on the throne, Jesus Christ walks up, He extends His hand, He takes the scroll from the Father proclaiming that I am the one who is worthy. I am worthy to hold within my hands all of history. I am the one who brings everything to its appointed conclusion. I am the one who makes all things new. This is what Jesus proclaims in that moment when He walks up to the Father and takes that scroll from His hand. And He went and took the scroll from the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne. And when He had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. What Jesus has accomplished is the salvation for all people, for every ethnicity, for all people, all over the world, they are able now to enter into the kingdom of God and to reign on the earth with Jesus Christ. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth, and wisdom, and might, and honor, and glory, and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven, and on earth, and under the earth, and in the sea, and all that is in them, saying, 
To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. When Jesus comes and this scene is played out before our very eyes, everyone in heaven, everyone on earth, everyone under the earth, even those who have rejected Him in their life that Jesus Christ has given them, all those who even reject Him, will still praise His name. They will praise it out of force, but they will make known that He is the one worthy. All people, everywhere, all creation. I imagine even Satan himself will in that moment proclaim He is the one who is worthy. I have been defeated. And then He will be cast into the lake of fire with all those who have rejected God along with Him. And then finally in verse 14, And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Now one thing that is rather strange in this scene is that as we've been looking at, Jesus Christ takes the scroll from the hand of the Father. The Father's sitting on the throne. He doesn't open the scroll. Jesus Christ is the one who opens the scroll. And then He is worshipped for it. This is kind of strange. Why isn't the Father is being worshipped, but in this scene, the focus is taken off of the Father and is put on Jesus. In the words of James Hamilton, this is the Father's silent approval of everything that is going on in this moment. The Father approves of the worship of the Lamb. Because, as Paul writes in Colossians, He is the image of the invisible God. He represents Him perfectly in every way. So He is worshipped. And it is approved by the Father and all those in heaven. So Jesus is the one who is worthy. All of the Bible proclaims it. The question now is, do you believe it? Jesus is the one who walks up to the Father and takes the scroll from His hand. Jesus is the one who controls all of history. He always has. This scene in Revelation 5 just makes it known to all of creation. Jesus is the one who has control over all things, including you and me. What do you do when you hear that? All of you. What do you do when you hear that Jesus Christ controls all of history? That He controls your history? And that it is all about Him? Not you. It is all about His glory, not ours. Do you rejoice in that? Or do you resist it? If you resist, let me warn you. Jesus invites you to come to Him in joy. He invites you to come in joy, finding your ultimate satisfaction in Him and in Him alone.
It doesn't matter what you look like. It doesn't matter where you're from. And it doesn't matter what you have done. Jesus Christ is able to extend mercy to all who call upon His name. However, He will not always extend this invitation. One day He's going to come back as the lion that He is, that we see here in Revelation 5. And all those who resist and reject Him will be crushed under His feet for all eternity. To resist the one who holds all history in His hand is foolish. It's all in His hands. All of history. He controls it. Every part of it. Every piece. Every piece of history that you could think of, Jesus Christ says, it is mine. As the famous quote from Abraham Kuyper, there is not one square inch in all of creation that Jesus Christ doesn't say, mine. It is all His. And to resist Him is foolish. I pray that you can see that from what we've been looking at this morning. Throughout all of the Bible and in Revelation 5. So please, believe God. Not only believe in God, there are countless who believe in God, but they don't do anything with it. Yeah, I believe there's a God. Okay. Do you trust Him? Does He speak to you? Is He trustworthy? Believe in God, but also believe Him. Trust Him. Take Him at His word. Trust that what He says, He will do. Jesus Christ is worthy. He is able to save to the uttermost. Not only believe in Him, but believe Him. Let's pray together. Father, I thank You for uh, this Sunday, uh, being able to gather together as the people of God, uh, especially today rejoicing, that Jesus Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. He holds all things in His hands. He has the power of all creation and He will bring Your will, Father, to completion. One day we will behold with our eyes what we behold now with faith, all things being made new. I pray that even in the the most normal of days, in the most mundane of events, we would be seeing this. That we would see the, the marvelous plan of God played out. That we would be preaching the gospel, these truths that we've been looking at to ourselves in the most normal of days, on the worst of days, and on the best of days. Help us to rejoice that, or to rejoice in that Jesus Christ is the one who is worthy, who takes the scroll from your hand, and who proclaims in doing that, that he holds my history in his hand, that he holds everyone here, their, his, their history in his hand. 
May they rejoice in Christ, knowing that if they rejoice, if they take joy in that, then He will one day bring them into His kingdom where they will delight in Him for all eternity. If there is any who does resist, I pray that You would use Your Word to convict them and to show them otherwise. Jesus Christ is able to save. To that we say, Amen.